video game controllers, known for being buttons, famous for being joysticks. Nobody thinks much about them, so let's have some fun. Let's find out why video game controllers are secretly incredibly fascinating. Hey there, folks. Welcome to a whole new podcast episode, a podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm very much not alone. I'm joined by my co-host, Katie Golden. Katie, hello. Hi. Hi, Super Nintendo Chalmers. That's my (laughs) remember from The Simpsons. Do you remember that from The Simpsons? I do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the the Super Nintendo, the Super Super Nintendo. Super Nintendo Chalmers. Sure. I thought I'd come in hot with a Simpsons quote. Yeah, that's we just did a bonus show all about the chalkboard gags. And then yeah. this one has a bonus show involving ducks. So again, all the episodes are one universe. It's all in it's, an extended... Uh, I'm just going to call it a cinematic universe, even though we don't make movies. Podcast-matic. Oh, there's not really a... <laughs> there's not a word that describes podcasts, is there? Speaking of movies, perfect segue. We're also joined by two wonderful guests this week. And they are buddies of ours from working on the internet long ago, and also their great work with the Small Beans podcasts and videos and everything else. And they are also crowdfunding an exciting movie called Papa Bear. Please welcome Michael Swaim and Abe Epperson. Guys, hello. Hey, you guys. Three big radishes. That is the Obscure Simpsons quote I choose to enter with. (laughs) Someone will remember it. Moe's just counting his radishes. For some reason, that line stuck in my head, so I get it, Katie. Like, I say it all. Anytime someone mentions three items, I mutter three big radishes. And it's like the curse of being in our generation is your mind is crammed with too many Simpsons quotes. It's becoming less and less relevant. By the time we're old, we will sound insane. (laughs) (laughs) There's just going to be they're going to do autopsies on our brains and they'll see sort of pockets of yellow brain matter. That's like, yes, this is. (laughs) the simpsons lobe has taken over the rest of the cognitive functioning here that's right (laughs) but thrilled to be here thank you so much and thank you for mentioning the film it's an indie movie check it out papa bear it's loosely based on the true story of my dad coming out as a gay furry when i was uh no before tween when i was a teen an honest to goodness teen it's like a coming of age sex comedy lots of fun i'm done please continue (laughs) It's great. I've read a version of it, and I'm very excited for the final and for it to be a thing. Yeah, it's great. Very excited to be here. And and yeah, this topic, thank you, Jeff B. on the Discord for suggesting this topic. It is video game controllers, selected by listeners of the show. We always start by asking the relationship to the topic or opinion of it. Maybe Michael or Abe can go first. How do you feel about video game controllers? I feel strongly about video game controllers, honestly. I'm not that good of a gamer, so I don't know why I do have the privilege of having a... Leave. Sur- yeah. <laughs> I'm not an epic gamer, I'm, I, but I, I do feel strongly. I feel that keyboard and mouse is superior for many types of functions, oh, but yeah. if, I had to, if I had to pick one controller that beats all of them ergonomically and all that, I'm going with the PS4. That's oh, cool. okay. the end of my rant. <laughs> That's a great rant. I think it's it's the strongest uh, contender. It's perfect ergonomically. The buttons feel right. The joysticks are attuned. There's nothing better. Well lubricated joysticks. <laughs> if as long as they're still frosty, they need that snap. I also have strong opinions about video game controllers. I disagree about the PC thing, but that's okay because I do agree. That as a console boy, the best controller of all is the PS2 DualSense, PS4 DualSense, rather. The 5 still very, very good, but it's basically just a copy. And man, case in point, there's a super hard game that requires very many, like, a lot of Twitch reflex out right now that I'm obsessed with called Sifu. And controller's important. It's the way you... Anyway. Uh, yeah, I could go on. I'm going <laughs> to sure. stop because we'll get into it. But because you'll start crying. Yeah. Well, I co-host a video games podcast and I've been a gamer, right, an true. epic gamer my whole life. You I are more take epic. That, title. that is for sure. Now that I've beaten Sifu, I'll take that title. Yeah. I-, I like computer games, 
Well, when I was a kid, I never really had a game system. My parents were of the philosophy that, yes, we can play computer games, but we should do it on a computer. So we learned computers. Uh, and wow. so mine too. I, but go on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We had the same parents. We're brother and sister. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we had a, so we were able to play as many computer games as we want. Well, not as many as we wanted, but on the computer. So I never knew the feel of a video game controller. My first game system I actually bought during the pandemic, uh, the Nintendo Switch. Uh, and the little Switch ones are, they're, they're fine. And they're, they're nice to like, I like the movement controls, but then it also has like a full on controller that you hold in your hands that's big and uh, i love it it's really nice it's much easier to use than a keyboard i also disagree with you abe although i sympathize because i have used the keyboard most of my life but you guys gotta get into menus is all i'm saying <laughs> radio menus dude it works super well i figured it out I've even I've even customized my controller. I put little uh, little rubber caps on the joysticks that look like little kitty paws. So I love it. I just have to chime in and say, if you have large hands, the Switch controller is not is almost not usable. <laughs> I have this tiny. I have the tiny hands of like a Cabbage Perfect. Patch Kids doll. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. It's not. I have the same gaming history as you, Katie. I was only allowed to play games on a PC because we didn't have consoles. And then we got a Switch during the pandemic. And then I agree with Abe about keyboard and mouse. It rules. It's my favorite way to operate stuff. I would like go to other kids' houses to play games and be too controller illiterate to be any good at them. I would like know I could play GoldenEye better than I was, but I didn't know the controller buttons well enough because I was such a keyboard and mouse kid. That was all I knew. Thank you, Alex. And now we're on the same team for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the, the Zoom window of four people, it feels very two-on-two. Two. It's like, it oh, does. which which team's going to be which? Like, what are we going to do? <laughs> That's right. Although, yeah, in my view, Katie and I have you guys in like a pincer move. We're on the side. Right. So I think we have the advantage tactically. <laughs> well, from my perspective, it is Abe and Alex who are evil. <laughs> yeah, well, agreed there. <laughs> Underscore that. Let's keep this going. A little friendly competition. It's perfect. If only there was something we could do to like have like a competition together, but in a way that's not actually physically violent, mm -hmm. but we could like direct <laughs> right, our competitiveness right. through some kind of method of expressing that competition in a fun, friendly, and shall I say, graphically interesting way. Yeah. And the answer is paintball. Folks, uh, here yeah. we go. We're going to head out to the woods. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and this this topic, I love that it is super personal to everybody. I'm confident, listeners, we will not hit absolutely everybody's favorite game or experience of specific gaming in their life. But this episode's mainly about particularly funny and outlandish controllers, and then also the surprising early roots of video game controllers. So I think it'll be for everybody, especially if you're not much of a gamer, it'll still be very interesting to you. I can't wait to talk about Simant from the 1990s. Good Heck one. Yeah. I ref just referenced that on my show, which is <laughs> odd because no one's thought about it in 20 years. I think about it every day. Oh, there you go. You're the one. Wow. <laughs> Proven wrong again, Michael. Every day. <laughs> And all four of us are on the same team, the Black Ant team against the Red Ant team. Good. Yes. Excellent. Uh, Better dead than Red Ant. <laughs> Communists, okay. But not For young people, Simant Sim was a game where you played as an ant colony, uh, yeah. and your goal was to take over a home before, I think, the Red Ants did it. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. You had some menus. You know, I love a you menu. You are so into menus. Yes, I am. <laughs> no apology. When on every episode, our first fascinating thing about the topic is a quick set of fascinating numbers and statistics. This week, that is in a segment called S is for facts that are secretly T is numbers so incredibly A is making stuff. Extraordinary T is even more than each number that came before. Here's stats. <laughs> yes. That was amazing. That, that's my takeaway. 
Yeah. Thank well you. sung, but it was as soon as my brain knew what melody it was, I'm like, all right, here comes a long one. Let's settle in. Here comes a long <laughs> He's going to spell a whole thing. So here we go. <laughs> this is cocktail sipping music. Yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> and, uh, thank you, The Sherm Bank on Discord. For that fun idea, we have a new one every week. Please make a Massillion Wacking Bass possible. Submit through Discord or to SIFPod at gmail.com. And the first number is 11 bananas. Ugh, too many. 11 bananas. bananas. It's Yeah, it feels like too many. It's, it's what a gamer turned into a video game controller and used to defeat the flying dragon Agil in the game Elden Ring. They made a controller oh out of 11 bananas. So I personally do not love a banana. Uh, in fact, Ooh. I quite hate a banana. Oh, least, least favorite of the fruit. Uh, we, our team has been severed. <laughs> <laughs> You're a banana fan. Okay, well, yeah. yeah no, Katie, sounds... even the ants eat bananas. Even yeah. ants respect them. Well, they can have it. Uh, <laughs> always, I've just always found a banana disconcerting as a fruit. It's it's a man-made horror, but. Great. So now we've got a banana controller. That's just wonderful. That's the true man-made horror is converting them into a video game controller. Yeah. All right. So wh- what do you what do you got to do? You got to like chew a banana every time you want to strafe left. <laughs> I love that you it immediately is... start to dig into like the impracticality of the banana <laughs> g- video game controller. Like that isn't the point. <laughs> oh whoa the tone in that look that's what I the think, money's for it's for the bananas that's why, why are we here why are we here i mean why, i don't know why this guy is doing this i would never do this i don't well I don't Elden Ring also if there's noobs listening to this and that is spelled with zeros and a z Elden ring's notoriously really really hard so obviously it's a flex Uh, I actually worked at IGN, a big gaming journalism site, when Elden Ring was released. And there were other ones, too. There's like uh, bongo controllers that someone beat that dragon with, (laughs) where you can only input one or two things. Um, That's great. And then the best one I saw was something where it was like a kickboxer, and he had to control it by like punching targets all around his room. So by the end, he was like drenched with sweat. (laughs) It was also cool. (laughs) Yeah, th- this is really mind-expanding for me, because, again, I mostly know a keyboard and a mouse. And in March of 2022, YouTuber SuperLewis64 gave himself this challenge, and he built a controller with the help of a kit called Makey Makey. And that that might be how, especially that pad-based controller was also made. Makey Makey is a kit that was first released in 2016. It was developed at the MIT Media Lab. The kit is a circuit board, a USB cable, and a set of alligator clips. And what you do is you connect other things to that to complete the circuit. And then whatever you're connecting to it can be a part of a controller. So in the case of bananas, you set it up so that when you press the banana down, (laughs) like squeeze the banana, it completes the circuit. And that's pushing a button. Don't squeeze too hard though, because you know, like what happens is the banana pops out, and then and then it like goes into someone's mouth. And then you're eaten That's by a I dragon find. as and you then... watch your best friend choke to death in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this looks like a banana matrix. Like it's all these poor bananas plugged in with wires. Look, you're right. Look at it right from the bananas' that. point of view, and they're like. They just squeeze us for energy, man. We're just batteries to them. <laughs> they fondle us now? Do they I'm grab this, us? I'm already in this pod, this peel that I can never escape from, sleeping my little banana dreams. Or these Keanu <laughs> bananas are going to yeah. wake up. <laughs> but yeah, they're squeezing the bananas slightly. Is my under- Not squeezing the clips. They're squeezing the banana a little bit, right? Right. Yeah. And that that must be it. it. Right. Yeah. You're connecting your body in connecting with a banana and squeezing it is uh, yeah. doing something. Oh, yeah. So- it also electrocutes you pretty, pretty harshly. <laughs> <laughs> they don't tell you. This is why this is why I don't like bananas. I was the one. Every time I touched a banana, I got shot. You're just conditioned. Yeah. I'm fairly on board with this. Like, frankly, cost effectiveness, promotion of health. You know, I think it's a good controller. I give it. A four. Yeah. Is it cost effective if your controller... Now, PlayStation controllers are overpriced these days, 
But bananas are rotting constantly. Surely you would sink more money into banana controller eventually. You'd eat the bananas, Michael. 12 bananas every night? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Simple enough. Asked and answered. That's how the rest of us eat, Katie. We always eat bananas every night. Read Gravity's Rainbow. Again, only one person will get that. Maybe it's Alex. (laughs) Not me, but that's okay. Yeah, this and I like this story as a way to understand all video game controllers. And this is a quick within the numbers takeaway number one. Any properly configured circuits can be a video game controller. Not all of them are electronic based on current so much these days. But if you just set up a circuit where you complete the circuit by pressing something or adjust the amount of electricity going through it, That was how all the first controllers were built, and that's how people can use this kind of kit to make anything into a controller if they want to. So what you're saying is these bananas could be hamsters. Uh, Pretty much, yeah. I think so. Hang on, I gotta go, guys. You just have to keep the clips on them. I'll be back later. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) Yeah, this guy, he set up all of his bananas there's footage of him defeating the dragon after like knocking out a few human characters as a test run and he also would describe his buttons as bananas like he said he had a dodge banana and a horse banana and an attack banana horse banana and then he defeated the boss the flying dragon agil then he ate each banana consecutively in grim silence <laughs> now this is, of course, very creative. But Alex, are we gonna are we gonna talk about this uh, this friendly reminder that Super Lewis issued on Twitter? Super Lewis sixty four. He's at Super Lewis underscore sixty four on Twitter. He said, "Quote: Friendly reminder: Bananas leak after using them. I repeat, <laughs> they leak after prolonged use. I'm moving back to building exercise controls after this bit." And then he had a picture of kind of beat up bananas all over his desk in front of Elden Ring. I hate a leaky banana. Sounds like a medical problem, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) And now that we've covered a food controller, uh, the next number here is 200. Because 200 is the number of special video game controllers produced in the year 2019 by the Miller Brewing Company. They made 200 controllers that are a can of Miller Lite beer. There's beer in the can and everything. Now that's a controller I can get behind and tell you what. Uh... Wait, so you drink, do you have to drink, is it like 11 cans of beers and you have to sip each one to play the game? Oh. <laughs> you don't have to, you were asking about eating bananas and now you have to drink the beers. I think you just have to touch them, oh. right? Then what's the point of it being beer? I don't Smart think guy. I think it's Miller trying to get some of that sweet money is what I do. That what? viral but buzz going, yeah. They want money? <laughs> yeah. The, mount, the but, mountains uh, yeah. on the can turn blue as you lose the game. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Millers? I just conflated you with cores. Suck it. Suck it. <laughs> but yeah, how did this one work? Did it have buttons on it? Did you pop the top? How'd you right. do the controls? Yeah, it's just it's basically just an object in the way other controllers are. It's mm. a can with a lot of the technical components sort of built into the bottom base of the can. And then the side of the can had a four-directional arrow pad, buttons for A, B, X, Y, start and select. And the controller parts are separated from the liquid beer in a way where it works. And it's up to you whether you want to drink it or not. It's just in there. Oh, okay. So you can drink it. Yeah. So not ergonomic at all. One use only. It's like a mess, like a nightmare. Just you, a thing to to prove you could do it. So yeah. Katie's right. Do you plug it into the? Is it like Wi-Fi, Bluetooth? What? Yeah, it it has a micro <laughs> USB for charging, but it connects to a console wirelessly through Bluetooth. And they they gave one of these to a writer for PC Magazine to test it. And he said that when he tried to pair the Bluetooth, his Bluetooth list just said Miller Lite Cam. That was the name of it for Bluetooth pairing. Now, can you download beer into the can through the Bluetooth? Yeah, refill it. Yeah. The ultimate DLC. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Drink loadable content. 
and they they called this the can troller and they they made 200 of them for a promo at e3 the e3 gaming mm -hmm. convention what they did is they hired comedian eric andre to sit on a stage and play street fighter 5 and andre and any challenger both used a can troller to play and if they beat eric andre at street fighter they got to keep the can and have it autographed it should have been that he has to drink his controller in shame and they give him a new one. And <laughs> by the middle of the con, Eric Andre's smashed just doing improv crowd work and stuff. He would yeah. be great at that. Good controller. <laughs> this Big is the fan. world I want to live in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and they were able to play Street Fighter with it. And then this PC Magazine writer said that he tried some Sega games on Steam with it. And he said what you'd think. It's not comfortable. It's not good. But it is definitely a functional controller. Like, he could do the game with it. Yeah. Although it does leak as well. Which begs the question, do video game controllers all have leaking problems? Is this a technology that would, had to be phased out <laughs> that none of us were aware of? They conquered this demon an aspect of the video right. game controller. I love Pong, but my hands are always so wet so after. Wet. <laughs> and what it? is that stuff? It's not water. What no, it's it? not water. What's <laughs> my question is, what's coming from Pong? <laughs> I do like that we have dry controllers, right? Ordinary dry plastic controllers. And now we're thinking, how do we make these sticky? Right. Yeah. Like it's fine. This controller works well, but it's not sticky enough. It's not, you know, gloopy. It doesn't have a sort of tackiness to it that can only be from dried beer or a leaky banana. I yeah, I think the rest of the show there is no food or drink in the controllers. Pretty good. Because uh, <laughs> bad news for my ants, though my sim ants. <laughs> Yeah, it was little green circles was the food, right? Anyway, enough sim ants. Uh, I wanted the, the to eat those word. little green circles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they looked so good. The, the next number here is two million, uh, because two million is the number of power gloves sold for Nintendo consoles yeah. starting in 1989. The Nintendo power glove. Totally undeserved. What a scam. Way more than they should have gotten away with. It's Disagree. just the controller sewn into your... A plastic glove that you can play with your other hand on your arm <laughs> yeah yeah i remember like the, the commercials made them look like your hand motion they were just straight up lies the commercial yes. was a lie without saying it it just implied a bunch of stuff it could do that it couldn't do yeah that was my understanding of it and research confirmed that yeah the power glove had one of the bigger marketing campaigns ever for a, a nintendo thing especially back in the 80s there was even a movie called the wizard with lots of nintendo product placement including power gloves that's what i was gonna say is you you're both heresy the power glove is awesome and cool as you can see from lucas in the movie the wizard <laughs> He's so he's, he's so the coolest bad. boy. He is the coolest boy. Watch that movie and tell me he's not the coolest boy. As a kid, I thought it was so cool and I wanted to be like him and I never got a power glove, so I wasn't. <laughs> the one surprised me was that they were not made by Nintendo. This was a third-party product. Uh, the Australian Center for the Moving Image says a company called Abrams Gentile Entertainment partnered with Mattel... Wait, uh, Abrams make... Gentile? Gentile, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're very picky about who purchases their power glove. Squeeze me? Squeeze me? It's also just a weird term to do tech. Uh, yeah, what does that mean, Alex? Explain yourself. <laughs> yeah, we demand it now as the audience. Okay, look, so all religions feature a power glove, right? And then... <laughs> okay. No, like, yeah, it's spelled like Gentile. It might be pronounced different, but I'm sure it's somebody's mm -hmm. last name. In, the, in Judaism, the glove is unleavened. <laughs> <laughs> but they apparently that entertainment company had worked on developing something called the Data Glove, which was an industrial computing product for like business purposes. And then they teamed up with Mattel to make something that works with the NES Nintendo console. And two million purchases went through, but it, it never like lasted or took off from there. What was the data glove for? 
data entry was the idea. Like you could use something that you're wearing in order to enter stuff. And and we have like different wearable tech now for different purposes, especially fitness watches and stuff. But yeah, the idea was finally you can wear something for computing when you're on the job. Mm. I bet uh, anything mm, it mm. was a calculator taped to your forearm, like essentially. <laughs> yeah. Or Probably, a small yeah. keyboard taped to your forearm, yeah. I want yeah. like a headband with just a clock on it. Um. <laughs> so cool. Okay. <laughs> Easily done. Easily yeah. done. <laughs> wristwatch long band if it's Uh, so easily done why has nobody done it yet Hmm? (laughs) and the next number here also kind of a forerunner of what we have now next number is 1000 feet Uh, so a little over 300 meters in metric but 1000 feet that's the working distance range of a wireless video game controller designed by atari in 1981 as early as 1981, they had something in their development lab that was a wireless mm. controller that worked from as far as a thousand feet away. Farther than you could see the screen from. Feels like overkill. Not really needed, <laughs> yep. but good for you, I guess. It's pretty small-minded, Michael. You just make a very big screen. <laughs> it's a problem solved. I'm over here solving yeah. problems. Yeah. Yeah. Or a telescope, you know. Uh, but yeah, they uh, didn't release this. It's true. The uh, the wireless controller, apparently a lot of regular consoles started having them around the 2000s. But according to Hackaday.com, Atari was working on this very early because they knew people like to be wireless with tech if they can. And they had a project codenamed Stella RC that used RF transmitting tech to successfully control an Atari console from a thousand feet away but also the transmitter would take control of other Atari consoles in the area by mistake. It connected to the nukes. You can say it. And they <laughs> <laughs> I like to yeah. think that sometimes these wireless technologies, what if it was a failed time traveler who went back and was like, I know what I can invent, Pokemon Go, and then just <laughs> failed at doing so. Said like, wireless technology, there's something in that, right? I'm going to Steve Jobs this. You mean because it seems ahead of its time, but it also right. accomplishes nothing? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Totally. There is. If I could like go back in time with all my modern knowledge, I also don't know how to actually build a lot of stuff. Oh. So yeah, I would, yeah. I would just be running around be like, useless. what if you make a car? And they don't know how to do it. So You send me back to like medieval times and you know, I'm like thinking, I got to teach them about medicine. I got to teach them about Atari. And then it's like, well, I can fold you a cootie catcher out of paper. And they're like, what's paper? It's like, damn it. <laughs> I was about to say I could make paper because I did it in <laughs> elementary school. But now thinking back, I believe we made paper just from shredded pieces of other paper. So that's no good. That doesn't no, help. No. That's, yeah. What yeah. are they doing there? We did that too. I really, th- I really thought I was doing something. We're like when you we pulped, you pulped shredded construction paper and then made yeah. it into paper. It's like what it, was that busy work? It really felt like you were accomplishing something, and then you realized no. Yeah, and then you hooked <laughs> it up to Elden Ring and you used it to play video games. And and so this this controller not only did it mess with other consoles. It's almost that nukes joke, like it interfered with remote garage door openers and (laughs) probably further stuff if they rolled it out widely. And it got to the point where the federal government stepped in and the FCC started regulating this prototype (laughs) and product idea. They said, we're trying to to play Atari at the Pentagon and it keeps going haywire. What are you guys doing? What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. You're like, you're playing duck hunt and a duck goes down and then a plane goes down in real life. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Atari apparently did succeed at making the FCC happy and making a workable version of this, but it retailed for $69.95 in like 80s money with inflation that's approaching $200 per controller. And so they just never became a widely used thing. Uh, and then wireless controllers had to wait for like 20 years. But their impulse is not wrong. Cords are the worst thing. Yep. Nice They're to get terrible. away from it. Yeah. Yeah. And then one more number here. This number is 1993. Because that is the year, 1993, when a PC gamer named Dennis Fong began using the letters W, A, S, and D as substitutes for his arrow keys. 
Mm. If people, you know, go look at a keyboard if you want to. WASD is a widespread replacement for arrow keys. WASD. That's how I always say it in my head when I see it. WASD. Yeah. WASD. <laughs> White Anglo Saxon oh. Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> But that that leads to another quick takeaway here, because takeaway number two, one individual professional gamer popularized the use of the WASD keyboard keys as substitute arrow keys. Mm. I, I didn't know till researching, like a lot of developers, programmers got the idea from one early esports athlete. I wonder, I wonder how that person brags is my question. Because do you think he ever has the thought to just go like, hey, invented the WASD thing? You mean you know? keyboards? Yeah. No, no, I mean no, putting no, no. your hand there <laughs> oh. in that area. Cool. So can I put my hand in your area? In your, yeah, and they're like, that works perfectly. Yes, of course. Yes. How, how's your flirting going, Dennis? Not successfully, but the logic is there, right? The logic <laughs> of what I'm saying. I'm going to press S and back away. <laughs> she said yes to f- to my flirts and her prize was D. Is that anything? That's... <laughs> to the right? To the right, yeah. <laughs> we ran to the right. Uh, also, I wonder if they were left-handed, just because that's just like comfortably where your hand would go. And I find it very awkward to use the arrow keys because I'm left-handed. So I wonder. I don't know if you know that little trivia. Yeah, because there is a there's a passive about computer keyboards, but I I didn't know this at all. I hadn't thought about them as the the gaming controller. I use them for a bunch, and mm-hmm. that that handedness question is interesting because it's not a lefty righty thing. It is a opening up your right hand to use the mouse, right? And mm-hmm. then once you're doing that, most most keyboards have the arrow keys way on the right side as well. And so the the shift for this was so that when your right hand is using the mouse, your other arm is just comfortable doing arrow key stuff. Right. Which is, I mean, that that means it's not a left-right-handed problem, but it means it inherited one because, like, the mouse being on the right side is because... Yeah. 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 Or it's like however you play guitar. It's like, what hand do you want to be dominant? Because they do different things. For example, I play guitar right-handed even though I'm left-handed. And that ended up making rhythm harder for me, but picking easier. So I think that, yeah, that's interesting to me. Cool. You guys don't crisscross? You don't, you know. Crisscross applesauce. I think that's why I, I used PCs. <laughs> I used PCs and controllers growing up. And I think that's why I actually like controllers. Again, because I'm like a large guy with a big wingspan. Mm. It feels the most comfortable for me to drop my arms and just have a thing in my lap. I think that's really oh, what it yeah. comes down to. Yeah. yeah. My gaming uh, posture is sort of chipmunk, so like as cramped and hunched over as possible. <laughs> Controller stuffed in your mouth, in your cheeks. Yeah, side. yeah. Exactly. I mean, like we got more <laughs> muscles to smile than to frown, and you can use those on your controller. <laughs> Talk about a joystick. <sighs> I hate myself. I hate my own brain. <laughs> It is, besides the mouse and keyboard arrangement thing, it is a comfort and speed thing for why this guy did this. Because according to PC Gamer Magazine, Dennis Fong, he's better known by his nickname Thresh. He's considered the all-time greatest player of the Quake franchise. He was also a top Doom player. Those are first-person shooters for a PC. And he won the first ever Quake professional tournament in 1997 at age 20. But he said sometime around 1993, he was, you know, a younger kid and not very good at games. Like he would lose Doom matches against his brother. And he said, okay, this summer I'm trying something new. I'm going to teach myself a whole new setup. And at the time, he only used the keyboard. A lot of players use the keyboard for both functions that a mouse does and the arrow keys do. And then he realized that in the game Quake specifically, when you use keyboard keys to turn, that has a fixed rate of speed. So if he switched to using his mouse to turn his character, he could flick it much faster or move slower. Like he had better aim, better maneuvers. So he taught himself to use the mouse and to use his left hand on the keyboard. He said, quote, right after I made that switch, my skill improved exponentially. Pretty much from then on, I never lost. And just somewhere along the line that summer, he configured WASD to be his arrow keys. 
He said he tried WADX, where you have to reach much farther to go down. But either way, he happened to try that. It made sense with the number keys right above it for changing weapons. It made sense with the shift key for strafing. And then as he became famous as a gamer, people asked him what his configuration was, and he'd just tell them, and then they copied it. That's so cool. This is also, ins- <laughs> I guess, uh, this is also <laughs> incidentally. No, I feel like he's, the guy is making more of it than any. He's like, first I tried the X, but the X wasn't great. It's like, dude, you just put your hand comfortably down on a thing. Um, Don't take even this away it's from very, me. It's the only thing he has. It's foundational, but I think he's puffing it up a bit. It, someone else would have done it Who if he didn't. are you? How dare you? <laughs> Isn't putting your hand comfortably down on a thing how you do most stuff, like flying a plane or surgery? It's true. It's not really out of the box. <laughs> surgery is very, very comfortable. Um, For the <laughs> surgeon. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> and I also just wanted to say this is kind of the reason, the mouse thing is kind of the reason that traditionally to this day, especially in first-person shooters, multiplayer does not match people who are using controllers and people who are using a PC because that intermediary Mm. of flicking a stick will never be as accurate as I move the mouse and click on the center of the screen and you're dead. Uh, (laughs) So it's definitely, if you're just going for the efficiency of doing the thing, mouse wins for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like it's it's a sports equipment difference, basically. You have the better or worse version of shoes or a ball or something else. Yeah. yeah. Point to Abe and Alex. (laughs) If efficiency is your goal. But that's a longer rant, so I'm not going to Why would it not be? Because (laughs) a game's for fun, not for efficiency. When I play on a PC, it feels flimsy to me. Or it feels like too much like, oh, I'm just playing a game. Because all I'm doing is click, click, click. You see what I have to deal with? Which I also associate with my work (laughs) machine. Yeah, it's horrible. No, he's got a point. (laughs) Yeah, and that that whole thing is very new. Fong tried this in 1993, started doing it in competitions in 1996. Before the end of the decade, a bunch of games coded WASD as the standard configuration for arrow keys. So, yeah, it's it's it just kind of popped up. He also doesn't call himself the inventor of it. He just says he popularized it, which I think is true. So it's fun. Even cooler. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There's He's that like... humility I was looking for. He's all right now in my yeah. book. Yeah. I guess I just realized that arrow keys were not originally for gaming. They were just for going through text. Like moving that little cursor line Moving the cursor, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, this this keyboard is just secretly a gaming controller some of the time. Mm -hmm. That's a weird tool. And and those are all our numbers and two takeaways. And we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to go back to the explosive beginning of video game controllers. Folks, there is only one reason you can hear this podcast, and it is the support of listeners. And that's from episode one of this show as part of Maximum Fun. This is more than ever part of what we do. But from jump, from the beginning of this show, the direct support of listeners is the only reason this podcast exists. On top of that, additional support this week comes from a company I really like, HelloFresh. To be clear, that was not me saying a greeting to the concept of freshness. That's me saying the name of the company, HelloFresh, because they're wonderful. They give you farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients. You can skip trips to the grocery store. You can count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun and affordable. And that's why they're America's number one meal kit. I've been a fan of HelloFresh for a long time, and it's not just that you get this fresh food. It's not just that you get recipes to do with it. I find that HelloFresh is both really delicious and really educational because we all love learning, right? By cooking HelloFresh boxes, I have learned the exact perfect way to roast carrots. I have learned how to make pearl couscous, a wonderful new side in what I make. Before I used HelloFresh, I didn't know what couscous was. Now it's something I just build into meals as an extra thing if I'd like to because HelloFresh teaches you stuff. You get instructions and recipes and ideas sent your way along with this wonderful produce and these wonderful ingredients. It's a way to really liven up your kitchen and also build up yourself. 
Go to HelloFresh.com slash SIFPOD16. That's S-I-F-P-O-D-1-6. And then use code SIFPOD16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash SIFPOD16. And code SIFPOD16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! It's hard to explain what happens on Jordan Jesse Go. So, I had my kids do it. Saying swear words. Saying swear words. Yeah, um, bad jokes. Bad jokes? Bad jokes. Maybe it's like you tell people that you're going to interview them, and then you just stay there like... Like, really quiet and try and creep them out. <laughs> it's just really boring. Because of Jordan, right? Not me. Because of both of you. Oh. Subscribe to Jordan Jesse Go, a comedy show for grown ups. And we're back. There's two more takeaways in the main episode here, and we're going to the beginning. Takeaway number three a former Manhattan Project physicist. Uh -oh. Built the first video game controller. Uh-oh. For those who aren't in the know, the Manhattan Project <laughs> was uh, a, little, a little secret society of people who built uh, the bomb. Dippin' Dots. The, the big bomb. We get. The, the H-bomb. <laughs> Dippin' Dots. Dippin dots. <laughs> I love the idea of this person looking at their controller and being like, is this morally okay, though? Like, have I taken humanity too far in one leap? Can we really, like, deal with this spiritually? Pan over to Oppenheimer. He's like, you're all right, dude. Don't worry. I am become wazed. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. It hasn't been popularized yet. <laughs> I'm a trailblazer, baby. <laughs> And this, this story is the inventor of the video game controller, physicist William B. Higginbotham. He's a, a U.S. <laughs> physicist. He did it at a U.S. government laboratory as well. Um, and Sorry, could you sources. say his name again, please? Just for William me. B. Higginbotham. <laughs> okay, continue. <laughs> Key sources are a biography published by the IEEE, the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, also the book, A Brief History of Video Games by games writer Richard Stanton. The start of it is the Manhattan Project. One participant was MIT physicist William B. Higginbotham. He helped develop the timing circuits for the first atomic bomb. Uh, he witnessed the first atomic test. He, he was, you know, significant to making nuclear weapons a thing. Uh, so I'm not allowed to like him, but his name is so good. Damn it. The next step is exciting because after this, Higginbotham, he becomes passionate about two things. One of them is he helps found a group for atomic disarmaments called the Federation oh. of American Scientists. Many of them did that, right? Many of them signed a thing, said, like, we yeah. created this horrible thing. Also, we're yeah. sorry oops. for whatever yes. it's worth. <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> oops, signed everyone who did the project. <laughs> I remember it, like Truman hated all the nerds. Like you, you need to be on board with the, your creation. No, we hate it. You nerds. Kind of, I get like the whole political situation behind it because they were probably told like if we don't make it, someone else will make it. So you've got to make it first. We're on the right. verge of this um, technology, and right. it's gonna happen. Yeah, it's definitely. But yeah. still, like if you're like the inventor of like the mega world killing sword, and you're like. Actually, shoot, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's tough to write the oh, instructions. Forgiven, dude. Oh, yeah, oh, of you course. Just... Pobody's nerfed, man. Yeah. <laughs> We've all done it. The famous Oppenheimer quote, Pobody's nerfed. Yeah, Pando, he just watched the blast. Pobody is nerfed. <laughs> single tear rolls down Darkness his Darkness in his eyes, yeah. 
Poe Buddy's nerfect. <laughs> I, I am become Poe Buddy. Poe po Buddy, yes. I am become Poe Buddy. Yeah, and the other thing those guys did is what Higginbotham did. He made his job working for peaceful and positive new uses of atomic splitting. He's like, what are other ways this technology can be used for society? Video games, video games, video games. <laughs> yes, banana controllers. I mean, bananas are slightly radioactive, so. That's true. <laughs> we must split the banana. They just makes ice cream. I like puts it together. Uh, but he, so he goes to work at further government laboratories to find good uses of atomic stuff. He works at the Brookhaven National Laboratory in the 50s. That's on Long Island in New York. And oddly, that leads to like an entertainment project. Because this Brookhaven National Lab, they did very serious and or secret work. But once a year, they had a community event called Visitor's Day, which was basically an open house type thing where the scientists showed fun demos to the public to like, I think, just do a nice thing. It doesn't it's not clear why they bothered to do this at all. But I think it was to make the lab fun and not spooky. <laughs> like it's like maybe we should take these skeletons down <laughs> <laughs> and yeah and they uh for the 1958 visitors day higginbotham decided to do a creative project because his department had an analog computer that they had in a custom way hooked up to a machine called an oscilloscope and an oscilloscope is an electronic instrument with a screen for displaying waveforms and voltages. And they, for and it their real goes like work... this. <laughs> an audio oscilloscope. It's going on. <laughs> uh, for, their, for their real work, they use that to calculate missile trajectories. Like war stuff, you know? But along the way, they had also programmed that to do the similar task of calculating a bouncing ball's path because it's just physics the same way. And Higginbotham says, hey, can we use this machine to build something interactive for fun? And the interactive fun idea is that a person could control a virtual tennis racket and swing it at a virtual ball at a chosen angle. And then the computer responds, calculates the path, and you, you have an interactive, entertaining game. And so he and a couple colleagues put it together, and on October 18th, 1958... At Visitor's Day, they unveiled a program called Tennis for Two, uh, which is players aim and swing a virtual racket at a virtual ball, and they did it with two custom-built control devices that are widely acknowledged to be the first video game controllers. Higginbotham and his colleagues had to like build this by hand. Uh, it did not exist as a thing. And so for this game, they built two small aluminum boxes that were each one dial and one button. And so you turn the dial to aim the racket, and you press the button to swing the racket. Hmm. And, and that was it. Yeah. And the, the technical components of that were an electronic circuit with a variable resistor. So when you turn the dial, it changes the resistance in the circuit. And then that is information <sighs> for the, the machine to use to do the game. Also interesting that the first game ever involved modeling realistic physics because that's one of the hardest parts of game design and many games still don't do it. Like, or oh, yeah. gamers will know what I mean. There's like, most games have predetermined physics, like an animation cycle goes, but there's some games where they're like, our physics are real, meaning like objects are responding to forces we programmed in. And Pong actually does that. And that's hard. Like, it's interesting that the very first game had physics. That's so cool. God, it's so interesting. I, I I don't know. It's like we we take for granted so much like computer programming and how that all works. But like when you break it down into this like analog computer and what they had to do to make that work, it's just it's so incredible. Yeah, and, and it, this was the top scientists in the country, basically, uh, and the most advanced equipment in the country. Like the, it's why back in 1958, it would be a government lab and not some startup somewhere like you truly had to have the most cutting edge stuff to do this and still playing video games at work <laughs> yeah it's a problem people they're just playing call of duty in between inventing the nuclear bomb <laughs> sir i'm pleased to give you top level clearance we can now inform you of a little project called sonic the hedgehog he goes faster <laughs> brace yourself it's very fast <laughs> 
What's he doing? Gold coins, sir. Gold coins. <laughs> We're thinking of or switching rings, it to rings, sorry. but we haven't decided. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and with the involvement of scientists and gaming, the, these particular scientists did not recognize how popular this idea would be. Apparently, Higginbotham took it back down at the end of Visitor's Day. He set it up at the Visitor's Day the next year because he was like, oh, why not do it again? And then they just moved on. They didn't patent any of what they built. They didn't try to publicize it, didn't try to market it. This didn't get rediscovered until 1983. So 25 years later, a magazine journalist named David All is working on a magazine article, finds out that these guys built a video game, and then popularizes it, and it's agreed upon that they made the first video game controllers. But at the time, they were like, yeah, that was a fun open house activity. Now back to yeah. science. Huh. You know? I love the joy of children. Anyways, back to doomsdays. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, and that leads into the last takeaway of the main show, takeaway number four. The parallel invention of knob-based video game controllers helped create the entire home video game industry. It turns out that, like, you know, Higginbotham's idea does not enter the marketplace, but some other companies parallel invented tennis-ish, pong-ish games like that. And the very good controller that makes that fun let kind of the whole console industry get started. That's interesting. So, so Pong was kind of the first controller-based game. So there, there was litigation about it because there was one pretty similar game before that. Ping. Uh, that was not theirs. <laughs> Ping. Ping comes before Pong. Come on. Give us this one. Throw us a bone. Uh, Ping truther. Just what we need. It was actually Final Fantasy III. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, known in the States as Final Fantasy III. <laughs> uh, now, now, is Zelda the paddle or is Zelda the ball? I can never remember. <laughs> yeah. It's a problem with the franchise's marketing, that's for sure. Yeah, because this, this is basically the early history of consoles. And again, a Higginbotham's demo. It's really believed that Higginbotham's demo was not copied, just other companies thought of it separately. Uh, in particular, starting in the late 1940s, there was a television engineer named Ralph Baer who sketched out and prototyped ways of playing interactive games on a TV. And he did that for a lot of companies. After a lot of acquisitions and mergers, he was working at the Magnavox company. And in 1972, they released a console based on that idea. It was called the Magnavox Odyssey. And I'd never heard of it before, but this Did, comes before Pong. Do you know if it had multiple games? Because that's what's interesting to me. Or like the first consoles, my understanding is it's like a device that plays this one game, right? It's almost like an arcade machine. Uh, I don't know if you know, yeah. maybe it's not the topic of the episode, but I'm curious when they started being like, you could put them on cartridges and have five games. Yeah, I guess this one had cartridges, and because you're right, like Pong, when it was first in homes, was just Pong, and it didn't yeah. do anything else. Yeah, but the the Odyssey apparently it had basically a bare circuit board and just a little label that said this is for this game. It didn't have like a nice cartridge around it or right. anything, but you would take that in and out. It was really rudimentary. Oh, you'd stuff. like crack the whole thing open and replace the motherboard, and now it plays. Pac-Man or whatever. I mean, still yeah. way before Pac-Man even, but you know what I mean. Right. What games did it play? This was also early enough that basically every game was just a virtual version of a real sport. It was ah. a very sports-driven time. And so apparently the Odyssey, it had a hockey game, it had a volleyball game, but far and away the two most popular games on it were tennis and table tennis. Okay, so was this all just Pong, but they labeled yes. it differently? Like, okay, now it's hockey, now it's tennis, oh. now it's, it's table tennis. Based. It was the Wii bowling of its time. Yeah, everyone's mm -hmm. like, you tried this thing? Yeah. It's just the same <laughs> Pong setup. It's two bars and a ball, but you're just like, oh, but now it's a little bit sideways. Oh, we're mm -hmm. still doing it today. Three years ago, a game called Pong Story Mode came out where you have to like do a quest with characters and lore by playing Pong over and over. You become okay, Pong I, by the end. IP never dies. Okay, never. but I actually had a game growing up called Mortal Pong Bat. Uh, and it was a game where, like, you would try to blow up the other person's paddle. It was I really fun. I remember this, and I hadn't 
thought about it for 25 years. That does exist. <laughs> I, I feel that. like we got the same wow. stack of game CDs because, yeah. like, yeah, it was just like you would it the ball would sometimes be bombs and you would mm. try to like blow up the other uh paddle wow there's a good yeah. early one like that called battle chess that was just normal chess but yes. when you took a piece your piece would come to life and like mercilessly yeah. murder you would see the them piece. you would see the queen like slay the little pawn like yeah slit the pawn's throat and stuff it was just great. the red wedding but very yeah. slow <laughs> Yeah, like now we have every kind of game and the start of people bothering to buy a video game machine that you bring in your house was fakey tennis that is basically Pong. And and yeah, the, the Odyssey was the first big one. Apparently the console was a hit mainly just because of these tennis games. It had a price of $100 back in 1972, which is over $700 today. And they sold over a hundred thousand units over the first Christmas it was on the market. Wow. Like they they of, had a hit a lot product. Of disposable income there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, just wealthy early seventies people and a lot of wasps. and then around the <laughs> a lot of wasps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. disposable disposable incomers. Yeah, and then around that same time, engineers Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney built the first modern style arcade game, an arcade cabinet called Computer Space. Then they started their own video game company, which they called Atari, and they chose to make their next project a tennis game directly inspired by the Magnavox Odyssey's tennis game, and that became Pong. First that was in arcades, and then they sold little home machines that just did Pong. Why did they not call it the Dabney Bushnell Gentile Gaming Authority or something like that? (laughs) I would love my own hobby even more. My takeaway is that tennis really had its day. And it's really not. Yeah, people really survived. Yeah, Jeez. people were nuts about <laughs> tennis in the yeah. 70s. Ping pong's still popular in my friend circle when it's available. Table tennis. Yeah, I like to ping a good pong. And a lot of why this was popular as a game was that the controller was fun. Because the, the Magnavox Odyssey, it came with controllers that were just a weird tan box. But the box had two knobs. One was for horizontal movement. The other was for vertical movement. The Pong setup, it was still just a knob for controlling it. And that was a fun enough way to play a video game. Like, it it really worked. You really felt like you were controlling that paddle. And having an effective enough controller made these games a hit. Like, people would spend pretty crazy money on a box that just played this game. It's nuts how how simplistic we are as creatures where it's just like something as tactile as a button that's just hacks our brain we're just like love it love it want more of it give me as many buttons as possible it's the (laughs) core of every video game loop it is like you see it here the very inception of like fidget spinners speak in part to the same thing in our brains you're like i press this thing and that thing there moves in tandem with it that's interesting yeah, you get some serotonin release every time you push a button. You're just going to be yeah. pushing that button till you die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I see a button in a room. I'm pushing it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> That's why they won't let him in hospitals anymore. Um, One time. I also love that the box is so specific <laughs> to that game that the vertical knob also says English. Like putting spin on the ball is defined as that's what this knob is for. It would be like yeah. if your Nintendo button instead of being A was like Mario jump button. Yeah, it's right. It's just cool. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's really all it took. Like there were whole machines just for this. Also, the the Pong arcade cabinet was a huge hit. Apparently, Pong arcade cabinets took in four times more money than competing arcade games of the time. They were just an just a huge cash cow. Uh, but the the consoles sold really well, especially in the sporting goods sections of department stores. That was where the Odyssey and Pong got placed at Sears and stores like it. It's like, finally, I can do sports from my couch. Yeah, the dream. It's great. I'm going to go play FIFA later. It's great. Yeah, yeah. I just I just love that. We were like, we were playing sports, getting exercise, getting outside. And they were like, oh, but finally, I don't have to do all that stuff. I don't have to go outside to play sports. You get the same serotonin just from looking at little bright colors on the screen. Like, not even colors, just like light, white light on a black screen. Yeah. 
I am remembering I have there was a time in grade school where I told my friend that we should go play backyard soccer and he he was revolted to learn that I meant the computer game franchise with a game called backyard soccer. Like he thought Great he thought franchise. we were going outdoors and I was like, "No, I want to use Pablo Sanchez in in this backyard soccer yes. game. He's the kid <laughs> with the little hat." Language. What's your favorite <laughs> backyard game? Oh, soccer, yeah. No, baseball is good. Soccer? Yeah. Baseball's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Pablo Sanchez for life. He's the best. Yeah, at everything. Anyway. How about that Simmons, you guys? <laughs> oh, yeah, now we're talking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sports and ants, the two games. <laughs> but, but like, this one wave of knob-controlled tennis games built everything else. The home version of Pong debuts in 1974, and then within two years of that, engineer Jerry Lawson and the Fairchild Semiconductor Company released a console called the Fairchild Video Entertainment System that had controllers with a vertical hand grip, a joystick that moved in eight directions. You could press the joystick in as a button, and then it also had a separate hold button that let you pause the game. Once we had consoles going as a business, all the other controller innovation happened from there. Like As this advanced, uh, Atari in 1977, they released the Atari 2600, and that kind of had both eras of controllers. They had one that was based on a joystick and buttons, but the console also came with a set of just knobs, so you could still do your Pong kind of stuff. And, you know, today's home gamers usually have a controller that does everything, but I, I like knowing that all of this stood on the shoulders of knob, tennis, and Pong stuff. Like, that that was the beginning. That That's the controller that really got it going even going back to that weird government lab in the late 50s. And now we've got, like, on uh, the modern controllers, we've got both the trigger button and then the other button. And I don't remember its name. What are the Shoulder. two buttons? Shoulder button. Shoulder? Yeah. This got the elbow. We got the knees. You know, <laughs> so many buttons to remember. The knee part of the controller. That's an... I, yeah. I, I want to... Yeah, I want your controller, Katie. It sounds awesome. It's it's warm and alive. It's alive. It's technically alive. It's the hamsters, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to know what that middle handle of the N64 controller is. Trust me. You don't want to know. <laughs> I don't get it. What do you mean? <laughs> Off my. Off my. Folks, that's the main episode for this week. Welcome to the outro with fun features for you, such as help remembering this episode with a run back through the big takeaways. Takeaway number one, any properly configured circuit can be a video game controller. Takeaway number two, one individual professional gamer popularized the use of WASD keyboard keys as substitute arrow keys. Takeaway number three, a former Manhattan Project physicist built the first video game controller. And takeaway number four, the parallel invention of knob-based video game controllers that were fun for super simple tennis created the entire home video game industry. Those are the takeaways. Also, I said that's the main episode because there is more secretly incredibly fascinating stuff available to you right now if you support this show at MaximumFun.org. Members get a bonus show every week where we explore one obviously incredibly fascinating story related to the main episode. This week's bonus topic is the Nintendo Duck Hunt Gun. Visit SIFpod.fun for that bonus show, for a library of almost 12 dozen other secretly incredibly fascinating bonus shows, and a catalog of all sorts of Max Fun bonus shows. It is special audio just for members. Thank you for being somebody who backs this podcast operation. Additional fun thing, check out our research sources on this episode's page at MaximumFun.org. Key sources this week include the book The Ultimate History of Video Games by games writer and former Atari employee Stephen L. Kent, also the book A Brief History of Video Games by games writer Richard Stanton, and a biography of William B. Higginbotham published by the IEEE. 
That page also features resources such as native-land.ca. I'm using those to acknowledge that I recorded this on the traditional land of the Canarsi and Lenape peoples. Also, Katie taped this in the country of Italy. Michael taped this on the traditional land of the Ohlone people. Abe recorded this on the traditional land of the Gabrielino Wartongva and Keech and Chumash peoples. I want to acknowledge that in my and Michael and Abe's locations, and in many other locations in the Americas and elsewhere, Native people are very much still here. That feels worth doing on each episode. And join the free SIF Discord, where we're sharing stories and resources about Native people and life. We're also talking about this episode on the Discord, and hey, would you like a tip on a whole nother episode? Well, each week I'm finding you something randomly incredibly fascinating by running all the past episode numbers through a random number generator. This week's pick is episode 101, which is about stainless steel. Fun fact there, there is an unburnable copy of the book The Handmaid's Tale, personally tested and blasted with a flamethrower by Margaret Atwood, that is bound with aerospace-grade stainless steel. So I recommend that episode. I also recommend my co-host Katie Golden's weekly podcast, Creature Feature, about animals and science and more. Also, as we said in that main episode, our pals Michael Swaim and Abe Epperson, our wonderful guests today, they are crowdfunding a movie. It's very independent, very personal. It is called Papa Bear. There's a link in the description to visit that crowdfunding page, find out more about the movie, and find out how to pitch in. Please do that. Our theme music is Unbroken Unshaven by the Budos Band. Our show logo is by artist Burton Durand. Special thanks to Chris Souza for audio mastering on this episode. Extra, extra special thanks go to our members, and thank you to all our listeners. I'm thrilled to say we will be back next week with more secretly incredibly fascinating. So how about that? Talk to you then. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.